0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme.
1: It begins in October with a phone call. Are you making the puddings this year, ma'am? I don't know, she says. I'll go to the doctor for an antibiotic. I might be able for it then. <laughs> but we know, my brother, my sister, and me, that she'll do it. She always does. We've been eating Maudie Flannery's Christmas pudding for 50 years. She can hardly cut us off now. It's not like any of us would know how to make it. Because here's the thing, the recipe is so secret it cannot be written down. It has to be learned by heart. Only two people in the family were ever privy to it. Our ma'am and her sister Peg. They made the puddings together, cackling over a bucket on the kitchen table muttering incantations, flour, sugar, butter and eggs, cherries, walnuts, sultanas and spice, whiskey. Pour the brown sludge into pudding bowls, seal with greaseproof paper, wind and knot the string three times around the lip, then gently lower each bowl into a hot bubbling saucepan on the stove. They kept vigil, you had to back in the day when power cuts were unremarkable. If the electricity went off, well, that could be a pudding catastrophe. So they stayed up all night, fortified by tea and Carol cigarettes, lifting saucepan lids every hour or so to add a kettle of boiling water. Our mother was in her 30s when she started this business about who's going to make the puddings when I'm gone. <laughs> gone where, we asked. Astonished, ma'am couldn't drive. <laughs> She'd have to thumb a lift. When I'm dead and gone, she said, my little sister started to cry. Let me tell you something about our mother. She was all talk. Forty years later, we're still asking for her Christmas pudding and she's still making it. Every year, as soon as the weather turns, we apply some gentle pressure. Can you believe there's Christmas stuff in the shops already? I know, yeah, it gets earlier every year. Next thing you know, it'll be time for you to make the puddings. By Halloween, the sing is in full swing. Should none of us would be any good at it? Nobody makes it like you. Christmas just would not be the same. She has four pudding bowls. A big one for my brother, because he's the eldest. (laughs) A medium one for me, because I'm the middle child. And a massive one for my little sister. (laughs) Because, well, we're not sure why. (laughs) Mam says it's because our sister has four children, and her husband is nearly seven foot tall. It leaves just a dribble of pudding to pour into a fourth tiny bowl to keep for herself. Don't mind me, she says, I'm here on my own. (laughs) Sure, what would I want with a pudding? (laughs) The year my son was born, I hit the Christmas pudding jackpot. He was a November baby and a guzzler. I was up half the night feeding him, and it made me hungry too. My appetite was, in fact, voracious. Between feeds, I prowled around the kitchen, rooting in presses, raiding the fridge. By morning, I torn the place asunder. I was a savage, a wolf in a button-down nightdress. <laughs> the only thing that hit the spot was my mother's Christmas pudding. Peeling back the greaseproof paper felt transgressive. It was November, for God's sake. I might as well have been sinking a knife into Christmas itself. Oh, it tasted divine. Within 48 hours, the medium pudding was gone. (laughs) It's amazing what you can get away with when you have a new baby. I phoned my mother, told her I was tormented by stitches, mastitis and hemorrhoids. The only thing sustaining me was her Christmas pudding. The brother's pudding was immediately reassigned and dispatched on the lunchtime train. (laughs) A week later, the sister's pudding arrived at my house. After that, my mother called a halt. The child will be an alcoholic by the time he's one, she said, and you'll be the size of a house. Put them on bottles now and be done with it. Then she set about making the puddings all over again. That was Christmas 2007. It feels like a lifetime ago, and for my son, that's exactly what it is. In the meantime, our family has grown. My brother gained two children, and my sister gained four, along with that extremely tall husband. <laughs> but we've also felt the pain of loss. None of us know what lies around the corner, what sorrow or what unexpected joy. Our mother's Christmas pudding always brings us joy because it's something she gives to each of us to remind us that another year has passed and she is still here.
2: One year when I was a child, I got nothing for Christmas. Nada, zip, zilch. And why did I get nothing? It was because I was bold. (laughs) When I think back in this memory, I see a small boy sitting up in his bed, looking round the room on a cold Christmas morning and seeing no presents and then walking quietly in his pyjamas round an empty house, looking for where the presents were hidden, and eventually ending up in the cold of the garage with the dawning realisation that there was nothing. I mean nothing. Sounds like Angela's ashes. (laughs) Now, I was bold. I'd like to think, though, that the moments of boldness were outweighed by my being good and kind and patient and all those other things were supposed to be. I met someone recently who'd been in my class the year my mother taught us, aged six maybe, and they laughed as they volunteered the information that, do you remember your mum used to put you in the storeroom because you were so bold? <laughs> no, I didn't, but thanks for that. But how bold do you have to be to get nothing for Christmas? Not even a lump of coal. Now I had a very happy childhood and my parents were brilliant. So where does that memory come from? As an adult, what I think actually happened was that one year I got confused and overexcited and got up on Christmas Eve morning (laughs) looking for the stash. Probably went back to sleep woke up the following morning with the presence in the room, then forgot all the joy of the good day and remembered for a lifetime the misery of the morning before. (laughs) And I have considered the possibility that somewhere along the line I might have just made the whole thing up out of my own imagination. But the truth is that that story has served a very important purpose. The story of how Uncle Johnny got nothing for Christmas one year has been told and retold to wide-eyed nephews and nieces as a warning for years. (laughs) And, of course, we had our own three bold children, the boldest of whom is here tonight and turned out okay. So there can be redemption from boldness... But do feel free to pass on my story to other nephews, nieces, children, grandchildren of your own who've gone bold. <laughs> and Christmas is all about telling stories, whether they're true or false. When the kids were wee, every year, we used to look for one of those pre-Christmas Santa experiences. We started at the little Santa Grotto down the road. And 12 months later, it was the Santa log cabin. A few miles away. The kids loved it. And then we lost the plot. One year we left the twinkly lights of County Down behind and found ourselves driving from Belfast to the Inishon Peninsula to see Santa and a load of wee Donegal elves in the same place that for the other 11 months of the year was a famine village. It was fabulous. But I reckon if we'd stayed in the car for another hour and a half or so, we could have called in to see actual Santa in the actual North Pole. (laughs) So every year we upped our parental game like a Christmas nuclear arms race, to the point where one Christmas we decided to experience Santa 125 miles west in Sligo. (laughs) And this is why fundamentally I have a problem with the Three Wise Kings they sat in their camels, they brought their gifts from the east to Bethlehem. They didn't have to knock off work early, stuff three kids in a car and drive west to queue to see a little Sligo man in a red suit, feed the kids, stuff them back in the car and drive another two and a half hours home to be fresh and ready for their work the next day. And all those journeys became part of our Christmas story and it's only now with the benefit of hindsight and common sense that you think that that might have been a bit extreme. You don't see the madness at the time, though. And you convince yourself that it's an absolutely essential part of the Christmas. The same way we convinced ourselves that the only way to cook a turkey is to leave it sitting in a bucket of water and sugar and salt for a week. (laughs) Or the only way to make the tastiest ham is to marinate it in red diesel and shoe polish with a tin of coke. Our first married Christmas, we hadn't our Christmas story together at all. My father was coming up to us for the Christmas dinner, and we hadn't really thought about where or how you get a turkey. Never mind, order one a few weeks in advance. So by the time I did, it was too late. Ruddy-faced butchers and lean, hungry shopkeepers laughed in my face, as I went round like tiny Tim to see if there was any chance at all of an owl turkey. What I came home with were turkey slices, (laughs) like you'd put in a sandwich for your lunch. So I gravied them up with the spuds and the carrots and the sprouts. We put them out, and God bless my father, he passed no remarks at all. He ate every bit and remarked how lovely it was. As he put the fork down from the very last bit of Christmas pudding, Sean Toll looked out at the sky and said, with all the wisdom and gravitas of a weather forecaster, that sky's closing in. Time we were on the road. (laughs) And then minutes later, the three of us still seated at the table, came his immortal words, profound words. Eight of them. Eight of them that have become part of our own annual Christmas story. Well, that's it all over for another year. (laughs) And that is the truth.
3: Christmas was never the same for me once I started to have doubts about the existence of the man with the beard. And by that I mean God. (laughs) I enjoyed Christmas, I still enjoy Christmas, but it's a time of year when I envy people their faith. And I remember how different it felt when I could stand in a church listening to a choir sing Silent Night and solemnly believe every word. At this time of year, I often think about the toughest job I ever had, the days I spent as a teenager writing obituary notices for a local newspaper. Every Monday morning, the news editor would hand me a sheet of A4 paper. Stapled to it were various death notices clipped from the classified pages of the Evening Herald, and the evening press. My job was to find a telephone number for the bereaved family by cross-checking the address in each death notice against the O1 telephone directory. (laughs) Then I phoned to say I was sorry to intrude on their grief, but I wished to write a short obituary about their recently deceased loved one and would appreciate any information they could supply with regard to hobbies, interests, etc., Sometimes the person on the other end would simply put down the phone, (laughs) either suspecting a scam or too riven with grief to talk. But more often than not, they were only too happy to share the story of their loved one's life. And these conversations sometimes went on for hours longer than was necessary to generate the two paragraphs of copy... (laughs) that made up each obituary. The most important aspect of the job was timing. As I discovered in the case of one widow who said, can I ring you back another day? I'm just on the way out to the funeral. (laughs) I put down the phone and smashed my head off the desk. (laughs) But she did ring back. It was about a week before Christmas. She said she was more than happy to talk about her husband's life, but not over the phone, which is how two nights later I found myself stepping into the hallway of a suburban semi-D with my reporter's notebook and a pen in hand. It was a cold night, but the house was intensely warm to the point where my glasses instantly steamed up and I was directed into what sounded like a very noisy living room. As the fog cleared, I found myself looking at a scene that resembled the closing moments from an episode of This Is Your Life. The word about the journalist coming to the house had spread. (laughs) Like a scandalous story in a small town and approximately 30 people who knew the man, brothers, sisters, children, neighbours, even old school friends he hadn't seen in years were crammed into the room. There was drink taken. And there was an atmosphere of skittishness about the house. Are you the gobshite who rang herself when she was on the way out to the funeral? asked one man. I said, yes, that may well have been me, all right. He was drinking a Christmas cocktail that may have been of his own creation, the main ingredients of which were Baileys, Malibu and whiskey. Will you have a BMW, he asked. (laughs) I said I wouldn't have a BMW. He handed me a BMW. I sipped it. My poor stomach didn't know whether it was summer in Jamaica (laughs) or Christmas in Alaska, (laughs) as I listened to their stories about an ordinary man who was extraordinary to them. One anecdote drew another, some of them sad, some of them funny, all the stuff of life, wins and reverses, joys and disappointments, friendships forged, and loved ones lost. As I filled page after page of my notebook, I wondered how to break it to them that the obituary would be exactly 90 words in length. (laughs) The details of the man's life are lost to memory now. What I do remember is his widow's absolute conviction that her separation from her husband was a temporary thing. "'I'll see him again,' she said, Sure, I'm not long for this world. I said I was sure she was wrong about that last bit. Make sure and wait until she's buried before you go ringing the house. (laughs) Someone said to a machine gun burst of laughter. As I was leaving, the whiskey and rum curdling the Baileys in my stomach, I could hear music coming from the kitchen. "'Who's that?' I asked. "'That's Alla Jones,' the widow said. "'Then she added, "'It's just a CD. <laughs> "'Lest I think "'that Alla Jones was in her kitchen.' <laughs> "'I'd never heard the song before. "'Christmas songs in our house "'were sung by Wizard and Shaken Stevens. "'But this was a carol.' about the birth of Jesus that was so beautiful that it sent shivers through me. As I said goodbye, I tried to explain that it wouldn't be a long piece, but she didn't seem to mind because the obituary was no longer the point. That was a lovely night, she said. I found out about her death a few years later from a member of her family. By then, I'd moved to a different section of the newspaper, but I read her death notice, and I remembered that December night... I walked down to HMV on Grafton Street, and I said I was looking for a Christmas Carol sung by Alla Jones. It's August. (laughs) The man behind the counter said, "Not unreasonably." (laughs) The Carol we quickly divined was called "O Holy Night," and it happened to be featured on a compilation of Alla Jones songs, which I bought on cassette. I stuck it into my Walkman then headed for Stevens Green where I sat on a bench on a sweltering summer's day (laughs) and listened to the song over and over again and the words, fall on your knees, oh hear the angel voices oh night divine, oh night when Christ was born stirring up the last sediment of belief in the bottom of my hard atheistic heart just as it does to this day thank you
0: it's lovely to be here thanks to these amazing musicians and all the other readers I remember a beautiful short story called Music is the Breath of Life and views are just breathing (laughs) deadly (laughs) from here to the Holy Land Usla wanted to get to Bethlehem. There was no star in the east, but the crowds at Dublin and Ben Gurion airports were lit up with pilgrim joy. So were we. First stop was the Whalen Wall. We'd promised our pals, a newlywed Jewish couple, to place a small prayer scroll into a crack of the wall for blessings on their marriage. Next thing, we got caught up in a bar mitzvah. A boy finished reading from the Torah, and it was Mazel tough, and hugs galore. Happiness defied the place of weeping. Then we met Aisha at Al-Asqa Mosque, and she drove us over to Palestine. She let us rest, drink juice, eat dates, and sip mint tea at the Arab Women's Union. Bethlehem was the crack. Friendly people pointing out Banksy murals, offering free samples of baklava at the souk. And yes, we walked the actual shepherd's fields. Of course, That holy infant in his crib at the hushed Church of the Nativity made us fall on our knees and say prayers for everybody out there, everywhere. Afterwards, our sons played some kickabout with local lads. I sat down in Manger Square and watched and wondered which player might be Muslim. Christian or Jewish. But the kids didn't seem to notice. Or maybe they didn't care. Why would they? A mild evening with sunset on its way and yet time for a bit more fun and play. Ah, my dad was right. We're all God's children. No matter the creed, Most folks just want peace, food on the table, a roof overhead, school, a job, a few bob to keep going. But this Christmas, I cannot imagine what's after happening in the Holy Land. But God tonight, I pray and pray me da was right. We're all God's children and we just want peace. Thank you.
4: On this morning's programme, we heard Christmas Pudding by Angela Flannery Christmas Stories was by John Toll Night Divine by Paul Howard and From Here to the Holy Land a poem by Rachel Hegarty The music, all performed by the RTE Concert Orchestra conducted by David Brophy was Ding Dong Merrily on High arranged by John Tate Colm Warren's song, Truth Performed by Cullen Warren and Maeve Smith, and arranged for the orchestra by John Byrne. Oh Holy Night by Adolf Adam, sung by Sarah Shine, and the arranger was Paul Frost. And the Wexford Carol, also performed by Sarah Shine, and the orchestral arrangement was by Damien Gallagher. No miscellany next Sunday which is Christmas Eve but there'll be more from the National Concert Hall on a special miscellany on Christmas morning along with recordings from the programme's other Christmas concert in the National Opera House in Wexford. And then the following day, St Stephen's Day there'll be a full programme from that Wexford event. A last Christmas recommendation for the programme's new book Sunday miscellany, a selection, features 150 scripts broadcast on the programme over the past five years. It's published by New Island Books and it's in the shops now. On sound in the National Concert Hall were Gar Duffy and Damien Gavigan. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. To listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio app or the programme website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday hyphen miscellany.
0: You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany Podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.